Welcome to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast. As we continue our mini-sermon series about exile, Daniel gives us the tools in how to respond to last week's sermon. And as you would guess, the first tool we should use is prayer. You're listening to The Dreams of the King by Rev. Peter Yonker. Our Bible reading this morning is from the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 2. My reading will be a little different than uh, what I have here and I'll ex- what you see in your bulletin, and I'll explain that in a moment. Uh, first, let me say Happy Mother's Day to all mothers, uh, and let me also say I will not be preaching on anything to do with Mother's Day in my sermon, and I apologize. I, um, we're going to continue our sermon series. And that sermon series was on the exile, as you recall. All, it'll be four ser- uh, sermons long, started last week. And all these sermons are from the Old Testament and talk about the times, come from times when Israel was exiled in Babylon and the Lord told them how to live and they struggled to live in this place where they were weak. And it's a good sermon series for right now because we are in a relatively culturally, socially weak position as Christians and these sermons hopefully will tell us how to live. And last week, you remember, we heard Jeremiah's letter to the exiles telling them how to live in Babylon, and they warned them against two extremes. On the one hand, they were not to assimilate, right? They weren't supposed to come just like the Babylonians and take on the Babylonian ways. On the other hand, they weren't supposed to completely separate and treat the Babylonians like they were evil enemies and not associate with them. Instead, God, through Jeremiah, said, go to the city, preach to the city, get involved in the city, plant gardens, make a difference. But do it, maintaining your identity as the people of God. Okay. So that was the theory. That was the principle of how we as exiles engage our culture. Today, we're going to see the practice. Jeremiah gave us the principles. Today, we're going to see it in action with Daniel as he goes into Nebuchadnezzar's court, as he lives it out in Babylon. The Bible reading. One of my big struggles this week was what to do with this Bible reading. This text is almost 50 verses long, and they're all important. And if you do a word count, it's like 1,500 words, which is two-thirds of a sermon. I cannot read two-thirds of a sermon and then preach a whole sermon. Or I could, but you wouldn't be happy. So I'm going to break it up. I'm going to start with the first 13 verses do some preaching, and two other times we'll come back to the text as we hear and watch Daniel as he functions in Nebuchadnezzar's court. Let's start. First 13 verses. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his mind was troubled, and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians and the enchanters and the sorcerers and the astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came and stood before the king, he said to them, I've had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king, May the king live forever. Tell us, tell your servants the dream, and we'll interpret it. For them, this is what they do. This is comfortable for them at this point. Then the king replied to the astrologers, This is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut to pieces 
and your houses turned into piles of rubble. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Once more, they replied, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will interpret it. Then the king answered, I am certain that you're trying to gain time because you realize this is what I firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there is only one penalty for you. You've conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping this situation will change. So then, tell me the dream, and I will know that you can interpret it for me. He's clearly very suspicious that all his enchanters are charlatans and are just taking his money. Astrologers answered the king, there is no one on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among humans. This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death, and men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death too. This is the word of the Lord. In the second year of his reign, King Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and he was troubled by them, and he could not sleep. That's how our story starts. So it starts with this picture of a king troubled, tormented by his restless dreams. And it's clear that whatever these dreams are, and we don't know at this point, obviously, right? Whatever these dreams are, they are really bothering him. It's not simply that he can't sleep at night. It's that all day long he's tormented. These dreams are going through his head. These dreams are distracting him all day long. So he's in his courtroom. He's in meetings, supposed to be doing the affairs of state. And all he can think about are these dreams. And it's getting to the point where he's getting edgy. His temper is about this thick, right? You can sense that in this passage. He's just on the edge of blowing up all the time. And finally, he summons his people and says, if you magicians and astrologers, I've firmly decided I want you to tell me my dream and I want you to interpret it for me. And the magicians say, well, we can't do that. Only the gods can do that. And they do not live among us. And of course, Nebuchadnezzar blows his top and says, that's it, I'm done with you. You're all, cut them all up, kill them all, including Daniel. So this king is really, this, this dream has really got the king exercised. He's really, really furious beyond what is normal. He's close to being unhinged. And so the, the, these verses that I read sort of open to us the question of this passage. And that's simply this, what is it about this dream? that makes Nebuchadnezzar so angry? What is it that's so unsettling about it? Why can he not stop thinking about this dream? Let's go to verse 27 now and hear the dream itself. And now these will be the words of Daniel who will, as you know, come to the king and tell them his dream. First, Daniel says, verse 27, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he's asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. 
He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you were lying in bed are these. As your majesty was lying there, your mind turned to things to come. And the revealer of mysteries, God, showed you what was going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because I have greater wisdom than anyone else alive. Daniel consistently deflects any notion of his wisdom or power. But so that your majesty may know the interpretation that you may understand what went through your mind. Your majesty looked, and before you there stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue is made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet, partly of iron and partly of baked clay. And while you were watching, a rock was cut out, not by human hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. And then the iron and the clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain that filled the whole earth. This too is the word of the Lord. So why is Nebuchadnezzar so worked up about his dream? What is it about this dream that we just heard that keeps him up at night and torments him all day long? Now, to answer that question, you've got to realize that there's two dimensions to this dream, two axes of understanding. First, there's the historical axis, the historical dimension of this dream, and that's the dimension that you are all most used to, and that's what Daniel spends most of his time interpreting. You are used to thinking of this dream, and this is correct, as a dream that sort of predicts what's going to happen before the coming of Christ, right? So Daniel says that had a gold that's Nebuchadnezzar's empire, and then the iron and the bronze and the silver, all that are subsequent empires, and they will go through all those things until the coming of Christ, the rock, okay? That's the historical dimension of this dream, really important. But I don't think that's the part of this dream that gets Nebuchadnezzar so upset. In fact, especially once Daniel interprets it, the historical dimension of this dream is pretty favorable to Nebuchadnezzar, right? He's the gold head. The other dimension of this dream is a personal, spiritual dimension. This dream also says something about the condition of human beings and human hearts. This dream says something about human weakness, personal human weakness. And that's a major theme of this passage, right? I mean, you can hear that as I read that, that right? People are constantly saying, I can't do that. I can't do that. You're asking too much. Human weakness is a major theme of this passage. This dream speaks to human weakness. And that's the part of this dream that unsettles Nebuchadnezzar. Because the dream tells him the truth of who he is as a human being. Nebuchadnezzar Here's this story of this amazing statue that in its appearance is glittering and gold and perfect and strong from the waist up, but has these feet of clay and is actually so fragile that it can be smashed into dust that is blown away by the wind 
and that it awakens his insecurity. It makes him ask questions about his own power. Remember, what year is it of his reign? Said right in the first verse. How many years has he been reigning? This is the second year of his reign. He's just starting out. And like all people who are just starting out a new job, and especially like people who are starting out a job with enormous responsibility, and there is no job with more responsibility than this one. He's the leader of his empire. He's realizing how fragile everything really is. When you look at institutions when you're young or when you're far away from them, you look at institutions and you look at the people who lead them, and the institutions look really strong, and the people who lead them look uber-confident and uber-competent, right? But then when you get in them, like when you get in council, you realize, oh, it's not that simple. The institution is more fraught than you thought, and the people who lead them are flawed human beings. Nebuchadnezzar hears this dream of the statue that shows this strong, shining face and projects this image of, of being in control, but has the feet of clay that is smashed to dust. And he says, oh my goodness, that's me. That's me. I am in over my head. He hears that dream and it's like all day long as he's doing his stuff, as he's going to his meetings, there's that little voice of the dream that's whispering in his ear, you don't know what you're doing and everything is this close to completely falling apart. That's the part of his dream that keeps him up at night. And that's the part of this dream that's not confined to this particular time, right? The historical interpretation, that's just something for Nebuchadnezzar's day leading up to Christ. But this personal spiritual dimension, that's for every age of God's people, because in every age of God's people, there are people who like to project competence and authority, but who just under the surface feel this close to falling apart. I would argue that our whole society right now is having a Nebuchadnezzar moment. I think our modern society is tormented right now by a version of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Why do I say that? Think of what it was like 30 years ago with respect to how we looked at our culture, right after the Berlin Wall fell, right after Gorbachev opened up the Soviet Union. How did we all feel about Western democracy? Man, Western democracy, we rule, man. Everybody felt like communism was dead, dictators were done, and our style of democracy was going, to, was going to take over the world and we'd enter into this new phase of cooperation and prosperity and America would lead the way. That's absolutely how people felt. If you lived through it, you remember the optimism of those days. There are all kinds of phases I could point to that showed the optimism. I'll point to a book that many of you have never heard of. It's by a guy named Francis Fukuyama, who is this leading historian and scholar, and he wrote a book called The End of History wrote it in 1992, right after the wall fell. In the end of history, Fukuyama said, and he's not a Christian, he said, you know what, history's been evolving and we finally reached the point where it's evolved so that Western-style democracy has won the day and from now on, that's what's gonna happen. Western democracies is gonna be the rule, all nations will give way to it and we'll enter this new age of prosperity. Now, 30 years later, Fukuyama looks like the magicians and the enchanters and the astrologers, right? 
That's absolutely not what the world looks like. All of a sudden, Western democracy, our culture, so many things that we thought were impervious on a national level, at a denominational level, at a personal level, feel like it wouldn't take all that much for them to crumble. Our whole society is tormented by Nebuchadnezzar's dream right now, and it's put us in a Nebuchadnezzar mood. What's the mood of our age? Anger. Our, our, our temperament is just like Nebuchadnezzar. We're, outrage is right on the surface, and we're ready to cut each other to pieces, just like Nebuchadnezzar is ready to cut his advisors to pieces. Right now, it's mostly metaphorical cutting, you know, in the comments section. Let's hope it stays that way. So Nebuchadnezzar's dream is not a one-off thing. It's something we see all around us from age to age, and it's particularly strong right now. You know what else is the same? The call of God's people. We are called in an age where people are tormented by a dream that they do not understand to do exactly what Daniel does. We are called to interpret the dreams of our neighbors and our kings. We are called to walk into their world and tell them the meaning of things. To point them away from the idols of power and sex and money and point them towards the rock of ages. And if you want to know how to do that, and this is what we're called to be, to be people who, just like Daniel in the story, right, he comes into this rage, he comes into this torment, he speaks the words, and things calm down. If that's who we're called to be, you want to know how to do that, you could do worse than by watching what Daniel does in this story. Let's go now to verse 14. And hear how Daniel enters into Nebuchadnezzar's situation, his torment and his rage. When Arioch, the, commander's king, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. He asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went to the king and asked for more time so that he might interpret the dream for him. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He urged them to plead for mercy from God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. So they prayed, and during the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. And then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, Praise be the name of God forever and ever. And I won't read the rest of that. He goes on to praise God for his majesty, his insight, praising him as the revealer of mysteries. So as he watched Daniel, as he engages his culture and goes in as the interpreter of dreams, I think there are three things that Daniel does that we can look at that can help us as we engage our culture. The first thing that Daniel does is pray. Daniel prays to God out of his weakness for God's guidance. In this, Daniel's approach is the exact opposite of Nebuchadnezzar's. How does Nebuchadnezzar approach his torment? He gets angry. 
He's forceful. He does not want to show weakness. He wants to show strength. I have firmly resolved. I will cut you to pieces. Nebuchadnezzar wants to show strength, not weakness. He's absolutely adverse to weakness. Daniel leads with weakness because prayer is weakness. To pray is to get on your knees and to say, I can't, but you can. Here's the truth. We are all inadequate to the tasks of our life. We are all inadequate to the interpretation of dreams. And I'm not just talking about the big dreams of geopolitical stuff that I was talking about. To our, own, our own kitchen table problems are too complicated for you and me to interpret. The anxiety of our children that we're trying to calm down, the fight within our own families, the machinations of our own minds. Even those are too complicated for us. And if you meet those problems and the problems of the world by taking Nebuchadnezzar's approach, getting harsher, by working harder, I'm going to get up earlier in the morning. I was given 100%, and I'm going to give 110%. Tomorrow I'm going to give 120%. And I'm not going to read one book. I'm going to read five. If you do that, it will crush you. You'll be miserable. You'll be depressed. And you know what else you'll be? Angry. All the time. But if you start on your knees, knowing that this problem is too big for you, opening your heart to the Lord of heaven, you still got to go out there and work hard. But you go out with that very basic beginning that you know where your help comes from. And you'll be able to go out into an angry world with hope and humility, like Daniel. Prayer. Second thing Daniel does as he approaches this situation is that he goes to church. Now you may say, wait a minute, he didn't go to church? There's no church in that. Yes, he did. Who did he go to? When he went to pray, did he pray by himself? No, he prayed with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He realized that... Um, his faith was not strong enough to sustain itself by himself. He had to be with others who would pray with him before the face of God. He recruited, he went to church. It's yet another one of those texts, and they're all through scripture, that show that our, our relationship with God is not something we do individually. It's something we do in community together. So prayer, church. The third thing Daniel did was grow in wisdom and knowledge. Use his wisdom and knowledge. If you go to back to um, chapter 1, you would see that Daniel had been thoroughly instructed in the ways of the Babylonians. He'd been instructed, 1 verse 4, in Babylonian language and literature. So he'd had a, he had a liberal arts education in Babylonian ways. Okay, And that helped him when he went into the court of the king. It helped him to relate to the culture and, and speak into what Nebuchadnezzar was doing. It wasn't the basis of it. The basis of it was the prayer and the community. That's the fear of the Lord. But the fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Wisdom. It's the same approach Paul took when he went to Athens, right? He went to Athens and they had all those idols around. They were being tormented by dreams, building idols. And what does Daniel do? Daniel, what does Paul do? He speaks to them, and he speaks to them using the words of the, the Greek poets. 
and he speaks to them using the words of the Stoics. He speaks to them in terms that they can understand, but he proclaims the living God. He points them to the rock. Now, that doesn't mean you should all get a liberal arts education. Doesn't mean you should all learn the Greek poets, but whoever you are in whatever situation you are, we all have an obligation to grow in wisdom and knowledge of the culture that we live in. There's one more thing I need to say. Those are the three things Daniel does. There's one thing that we have that we have that's an advantage over Daniel, and that's this. We have seen the rock. We have seen the rock. We've seen his face, and we know his name, and we know that we belong to him. There's two little details, and this is the last thing I'm going to say in this sermon, in this story that I love. And the first is this. In the dream, when the rock is cut, it's cut not from human hands. Did you catch that little detail? What does that remind you of? Virgin birth, right? The way the rock is cut is just the way Jesus was born, not by a husband's will, born of God. Daniel doesn't know what he's pointing to, but when he talks about that rock that's not cut by humans' hands, he's pointing to the coming of Jesus. And the second little detail that I love is that detail that is said by the astrologers when they say, no one can do what the king is asking, only the gods can do this, and they do not live among us. Not yet they don't. He is coming. The rock of ages is coming. He'll become flesh and he'll look people in the face and he'll live with them and he'll live for them and he'll die for them and he'll rise for them. We've seen the rock. We've seen the Lord of history. We belong to him. He is the Alpha and the Omega. And by the power of his spirit, that rock is growing, growing, growing and becoming a mountain that will one day fill the earth. That's the story at the center of our life, and it's a story that's worth going out there to tell all those people out there who are struggling with their restless dreams. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for your gospel, which shines forth from every page of this great book. Lord, thank you, Lord, that this story reveals the weakness that we know that we have and that we know that we live with. But more than that, it shows us the hope that takes hold of us and holds our future. May we always rest in him. Amen. Thank you for listening to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.